This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Inside the Tunnel, brought to you by VT Scoop 24-7 Sports. My name is Andrew Alex, joined by two-thirds of the crew today, Matasis and Doug Bowman. What's going on, boys? I'm just sitting here. Scrolling through Twitter, watching Brian Kelly news to to LSU, but it's pretty entertaining. That's all I got. Yeah, we're currently recording Monday night, 830. The news broke about 20 minutes ago, 30 minutes ago, looking at all the reactions from the LSU fans. It's pretty hilarious. Obviously, a lot happened this past week. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Hope everyone had a great time. Um, I just got back from New York today, spent some time at the Barclays, unfortunately saw one out of the two Virginia Tech losses, but was one big Virginia Tech win over the weekend. Indeed, that was the case. The Commonwealth went as it has for now 17 of the last 18 years, despite seemingly every intangible going against them. Virginia with a high-flying offense. Virginia Tech's defense looked poor against Miami and the offense, well, They've been what they were all year, but it didn't matter in Charlottesville. Virginia Tech comes back in the second half for a victory against the Wahoos to gain bowl eligibility, a six and six season, and the bowl streak starts yet again. Obviously an iconic win in in a lot of ways. Those J.C. Price photos, that post-game interview, going to be held in the hearts of Hokies for a long time. Was that win more of a success for Virginia Tech or an indictment for the school in Charlottesville? I'd, you know, I'm going to say it's a success for Virginia Tech. Uh, when you go, it certainly didn't look good early, but when you're playing one of the top five offenses in college football and you, and you come out in the second half and hold them to three, the three points, Certainly a little bend don't break there with how many times they got into the red zone on Virginia Tech's defense, but to kind of rise up in the in that situation and effectively shut down one of the best best offenses is was certainly unexpected, um, based on what we've seen over the last eleven games. But um, you know, I think that was I you know, I guess you could say after the Blumrick fumble at the very end of the game or with three minutes left and UVA charging down that um, they got a little lucky probably uh, to to hang on there at the end. But I mean, Virginia Tech did exactly what they had to do throughout that game to, to hang in there. They ran the ball. They hit a big play to Tavion Robinson early and they hung with with UVA possession for possess possession essentially uh into the second half got the got the field goal um stop they needed there to begin the third quarter and then they were able to tie it up and and, and then the defense was probably the only surprise of the night in terms of how they they shut down the UVA offense or at least kept them on the board kept them off the board so um I think you have to give a lot of credit to Virginia Tech 
the players, the coaches for for figuring that thing out. Matei, did anything fundamentally change in the second half defensively? Because I tweeted out myself in the first half, the efficiency at which UVA operates their offense is extremely admirable, and it's been all season. I mean, this is UVA's best offense statistically in program history. The second half comes along, and Tech holds them to a field goal. Outside of the Notre Dame game, when UVA didn't have Brennan Armstrong, I would venture to say it was the best single half defensive performance against UVA that they saw all year. Now, some of that can be put on throwing passes to offensive linemen in crunch time, but there's got to be more than that, right? Did Virginia Tech make an adjustment or was it big brother adrenaline kicking in? I think it definitely was a bit of the big brother adrenaline kicking in. Uh, Doug talked about holding Virginia to the field goal right out of the half. I mean, you know, it looked like essentially outside of the interception in the first half that Virginia was pretty much marching down the field and scoring a touchdown at will. There's defenders. I think the first touchdown of the game, you saw Dorian Strong stepping out of the way, Alan Tisdale, of you know, not making a tackle. That was kind of the mentality in the first half. It was just the defense wasn't woken up yet. They were kind of allowing Virginia to establish themselves and holding them to a field goal and seeing that they could stop Virginia outside of that first half interception uh, kind of woke up the entire unit. Dorian Strong had an insane second half, probably a first half to forget about one of the you know worst performances of the season by him in that first half. And then obviously you have to look at Brennan Armstrong. I think it was on the third drive in the second half, um, getting hit by Alan Tisdale on uh, sack and injuring his ankle. I think that really changed the dynamic of Virginia and, you know, um, obviously operating in a bit more desperation in the second half, seeing as they couldn't really operate to full efficiency. So I do give a lot of credit to the Virginia tech defense. I thought they played a, a stellar second half, obviously the fumble into the safety recovery was one of the biggest plays of the game kind of set the tone. Um, but I do equally think that Brennan Armstrong hurting that ankle and being unable to operate inside the pocket hurt them as well. A lot of positives in this game. Don't get me wrong, but we should touch on, I guess what is a negative in an indirect sense. Raheem Blackshear, ACC running back of the week yet again, 169 yards on the ground. He adds a touchdown reminiscent of what he did against Duke in the game between Two attempts, three yards. Did the Virginia Tech coaching staff make a massive mistake in the first half of the season and the Miami game by not making Raheem Blackshear the feature back, the focal point of the offense? I I don't think there's any way you can say no. Given that, given his production, yes, it was against probably the, you know, two of the bottom 10 or 15 defenses in all in the entire country against Duke and um, UVA. But, but he showed flashes of that throughout the, throughout the season, really, uh, especially going back to that Notre Dame game. Uh, he was, I think a little bit of credit or a lot of credit, definitely to the offensive line for opening up some just massive holes. Um, 
Same kind of holes he ran through against Duke. Same kind of holes that Khalil Herbert got to run through all of last year. I, you know, I think that's one of the big misreads of of the Justin Fuente era was that, you know, Jalen Holston and needs that they need to split split time. Raheem Blackshear has been one of the best playmakers on the offense, one of the best natural playmakers on the offense, one of the biggest play threats um, since he came from Rutgers. Obviously, he had a rough 2020 getting acclimated and all that stuff, but his ability, his make or miss ability, his ability to make um, big plays was I thought it was always pretty obvious compared to Jalen Holston or even a Malachi Thomas. I know Thomas had a had a solid stretch there in the middle of the year, but you know, like if if I'm the new Virginia Tech head coach that's coming in, Raheem Blackshear's probably got to be one of the top first guys you talk to to see what his plans are going forward, because um, he's, you know, I don't think he's a twenty carry, one hundred and fifty yard per game kind of tailback throughout the season. Um, but he's a guy that can obviously make some big plays for you in the running game. Indeed, indeed. Now, against Miami, we saw a little, you know, two-pony show with Burmeister and Blumrick, and we saw it again against UVA to a degree, but despite the fact that Connor Blumrick is the unofficial official favorite player of this podcast, it was Burmeister with a little bit of a redemption song that stole the show. Talk about his game. And this is a guy that's been criticized for better or worse because his health has definitely been called into question throughout the season. What did he do well? Or, or was this just a product of a very, very, very bad UVA defense? Again, it's kind of a bit of both, but. I mean, that first quarter from Braxton Burmeister was the best of his career by far. He had 152 total yards. That big play to Tavion Robinson was arguably the best throw that he's had in a Virginia Tech jersey. And then the 71-yard run, you can tell he's banged up. You can tell maybe if he's fully healthy, he takes that 71-yard run and takes it to the house. But for a guy that was so banged up, so many questions, whether it was a shoulder, ribs, ankle, finger, He's a guy that's putting it all on the line in the biggest game of the year, a game that Virginia Tech desperately needs to win. And he played phenomenally. And it's 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 kind of weird to say that he played so well, considering he was six of 14 uh, passing the football. But given his responsibilities, I mean, it was his highest rushing output. He put everything together. And, you know, for the first time, although I love Connor Bullmerick Blumrick, you know, it seemed to be that he was the reason that Virginia Tech had so much success in this game. And, you know, he just he completely did everything he was supposed to do. The Virginia defense was extremely porous against the run, uh, so he didn't really need to throw the ball all over the field. But for for Burmeister, I mean, this was a 10 out of 10 game from him. He didn't make many mistakes, if any at all. And he did exactly what was needed to be the spark plug of this offense. Three, three huge completions from Burmeister out of, I guess he only had six, but the, the third, the, obviously the touchdown to Robinson dropped it right on the money. The, the third down conversion to Dwayne Lofton that eventually ended in the Raheem Blackshear touchdown um, answers UVA's touchdown. And then shortly after that rough in the punter penalty, which was mind boggling by, by UVA to go after that punt 
hits Tavion Robinson down the left side for another big play, they eventually convert that for three more points. So that's 17 points essentially on half of Braxton Bur- Burmeister's completions. So didn't didn't do too much, but when he had to make a throw, you know, I think this is probably one of the first times all season we can say he he delivered. Indeed, it's certainly a morale boosting game that will put a smile on the staff's face, the players' face, and of course the fan base. I mean, you look back at what has almost now been a full decade of essentially mediocrity for Virginia Tech football, and when we try to find bright spots in there. It seems to always come at the end of the season against UVA, whether it be Chuck Clark with the big interception in Frank Beamer's final regular season game that preserves the bowl streak, whether you look at that epic game in 2018 that essentially preserved the bowl streak. They did have to schedule a Marshall to put that on ice one week later, but that awesome overtime game. And now this, in a period of time where Virginia Tech's almost playing with the house's money. You have an interim head coach, the future of the program is in flux, it's still very much in flux today. No one's going to criticize the team. No one's going to criticize J.C. Price if Virginia Tech loses a matchup where the deck seems stacked against them. But again, for the 17th time in 18 years, they emerge victorious. Is there a bigger picture meaning that we can find in all of this for the Virginia Tech football program? Or is this something where a few years down the line, We'll look back at that picture of J.C. Price with the big cigar in his mouth and say that and the Carolina game were the two moments that we took away from this season that put a smile on our faces. I don't think there's a big picture takeaway, and I think that's what makes the rivalry game against UV. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Yeah, he's such a, such a great, amazing experience is that you can have a uncategorically terrible season. You can be on an interim coach with two games to go. You can have virtually nothing. I know they had a bowl berth to play for, but virtually nothing to play for on either side. And it's like the the one time obviously you want stakes to play for a conference championship, all that stuff. But it's like the one time all season where like the rest of the season literally doesn't matter. It's just 60 minutes of football and you just, and you literally only want to win the game because it's UVA on the other side. If Virginia Tech closed the season with like Duke or somebody else, it would, nobody would care. But because it's UVA, because it's a rivalry game, because, because of the history there, like you can just invest all of your energy and all your emotion into one game. And I think that's like, like the, there's no telling what Virginia Tech's program is going to look like. There's no telling what the roster is going to look like next year, but that, that they played one full game of football and notched a pretty important win in terms of, for the fan base. I mean, for, for the players, you know, nobody wants to be a part of the team that loses to UVA. We saw that in 2019. And, um, you know, I think I think it's like the one time that you can just toss, you know, 
roster management and program building and the big picture out the window and just and just go try and win one game and that's what makes it so great yeah it's also it's it's crazy to see how so often it's the first game and the last game it's like when the expectations are are set high virginia tech delivers in the beginning and then you know throughout the course of the season things happen virginia tech's fighting for a bull berth no one really cares about that but you know, against UVA and especially in the last few years, it feels like UVA was the projected winner in this game that UVA, you know, with their number one overall offense was supposed to win against Virginia Tech. And, you know, it's it's about pride. It's about J.C. Price kind of embodying what it means to be a Virginia Tech Hokie, putting it all on the line. The entire fan base doesn't know what's going to happen. A lot of people thought this was going to be a blowout. And then you're pleasantly surprised because you're watching, you know, you've been disappointed so many times this season alone, so many close losses, so many heartbreakers. And you really, you know, this is the time that UVA should run away with this game. And yet Virginia Tech still finds a way to win. So it's just, it's kind of rewarding all the investments all season that Virginia Tech fans put in all their energy, all the money, all the time into watching this team. And, you know, for once you can say without question that the team delivered and kind of rewarded the fans for that. I think for Virginia Tech, when the narrative is that Bronco Mendenhall is really building something there in Charlottesville and the Virginia Tech football program is going down the drain, Fuente's out, whatever, Our listeners are very cute in. You know the story. They have a clock on the wall of their locker room counting down to the game. And with the exception of one season, 2019, they still can't get it done, at least emotionally for both programs. And, of course, perception is reality. That means something. It means something on the recruiting trail. It means something clout-wise. And Virginia Tech is still the dominant program in the state of Virginia. And if Virginia Tech is at all intelligent when it comes to what they can use in terms of recruiting, both Virginia Tech's fans storming the field at Scott Stadium, and I think uh, even more so, Brock Hoffman and Tyrell Smith planting the VT flag at midfield there. Baker Mayfield-esque, if you will. I mean, optics mean a lot, and it's big time, but... Hi there, this is Andrew Alex, host of the Inside the Tunnel podcast from VT Scoop 24-7 Sports. The next 30 minutes of this podcast was spent talking about head coaching candidates. By 8 o'clock the next morning, before I had completed the edit, that search is over. Virginia Tech is hiring Brent Pry. We didn't talk about Brent Pry all that much, but we're not completely clueless. Matei did mention him as a dark horse candidate, so I'm going to play that little snippet, and then we'll get back to the end of the conversation talking about basketball. The rest of the things we talked about would simply be wasting your time. So enjoy. I think, you know, a new name that is kind of entered as of six days ago and kind of everyone is catching uh, the tea leaves from it is Brent Pry, the defensive coordinator out of Penn, Penn State. He's someone that grew up in Lexington, Virginia. He was born in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Both are military 
Towns. His dad coached at VMI. Uh, he actually coached at Virginia Tech as a graduate assistant from 1995 to 1997. He joined James Franklin in 2011 at Vanderbilt, was an associate head coach, uh, and then was the co-defensive coordinator slash linebackers coach uh, from 14 to 15 and ever since 2016 has pretty much remained with, uh, Franklin, James Franklin. He's someone that of late has gained a lot of steam. And I think he went from someone that was maybe ninth or 10th on the list to somewhere in the top five. Uh, he's someone, obviously Virginia tech is, is looking for, you know, someone to remodel the program and, you know, Penn state is something that, if you if you bring that model to Virginia Tech would work perfectly. That's the right kind of fit. You know, maybe he's not the sexiest name. He's not a guy that you look at and say like, you know, like a Charlie Huff is a guy you look at and you say he brings the energy. He's going to bring recruits with him. You may not know what the product on the field is going to look like. And you may question how, you know, how seasoned is he? in terms of this is his first year being head coach at Marshall, you know, Brent Pry is a guy that's 51 years old has started his coaching career in 1992. So he's someone that's been around for a long time, been around successful programs. Um, and I think he's really risen. He's in as of right this moment. And of course, by the time the next podcast comes out, whenever it does, it could change, but I would say he's a top three candidate along with Huff. I haven't heard a lot about Bill O'Brien since we last spoke about it. Um, and obviously Bill O'Brien's a, a type of guy that we were questioning, where does his heart really lie? Is he the NFL type of guy or is he someone that's looking around and saying, you know, I could be the offensive coordinator at USC. I could be someone that works at Notre Dame LSU um, before working my way up again. Is he, you know, kind of in that top tier echelon working at Alabama now? So I think there's a lot of questions with him, but Huff is definitely one Freeman. We'll see what happens after this Notre Dame news. I think there's a lot of moving parts right now. And, you know, a guy like Brent Pry is safe enough to say, like, if if Witt has the deal done, he seems like a candidate that would be that along with Huff. So we'll have some fun before we get to the hardwood. Oklahoma and Notre Dame both open. Who are the next head coaches of those two programs? I'll start with... I think Oklahoma, well, I'll start with Notre Dame. I think that one's easier to figure out. I think their top tier candidate, number one, is probably Urban Meyer if things don't work out in Jacksonville. It just seems like such a layup. Urban loves Notre Dame. He would make so much sense there. He's a tremendous college football coach. I can't say that about his NFL coaching abilities. But they kind of – I feel like they're in a much better spot than Oklahoma in terms of if if he says no, Luke Fickle seems just as, you know, much of a layup to Notre Dame, you know, heavily, heavily, heavily Catholic type of guy that's already, you know, there. And I, I think he would be a perfect fit as well. So I would say between – I think it's going to be one of those two. I think it's pretty likely it's going to be one of those two. And, of course, Notre Dame has all the resources to get whomever they want outside of Brian Kelly, obviously. But uh, in terms of Oklahoma, I think they could take it a lot of different directions. Matt Campbell could be one. Shane Beamer, that would be pretty cool. 
Um, but honestly, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know who they go after. There was, I read the report on that Oklahoma 24 seven put out of the list of candidates. And honestly, I was just, I was kind of shocked by, you know, the, the lack of experience of, of guys they were looking after. I know they could get stoops from Kentucky. They already have the other stoops coming out of retirement to be the interim coach. Maybe they just stick with the stoops family. So but but none of those names seem like home run type hires. Whereas Notre Dame, if you're if you land Urban or Fickle, you're coasting the ship. I feel like Oklahoma, no matter what, they've already suffered five five decommitments, like three of them five star guys. You know, it's it's a rough time for Oklahoma. I think it's gonna go. I think Freeman's gonna get the Notre Dame job. I think. I I don't know if they'll be willing to wait on. Fickle to finish at Cincinnati. And I think they're really high on Freeman. Um, I think Brian Kelly even said before the season that he should be the next head coach at Notre Dame. Uh, and then I think in the, at, at Oklahoma, I think that job is teed up for Matt Campbell to take it. He's, they've got the money to pay him as much as he wants to be paid to leave, to leave Iowa state. It's a, it's a huge step up in terms of quality of job for, if his options are sticking at Iowa State and taking, I mean, it's it's a no brainer. It's 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 a no brainer for him to take that Oklahoma job, especially if he's still sniffing around the NFL jobs. Um, he's got a much better chance at big time success at Oklahoma to eventually hop to the NFL when he's ready. So I think it's going to be Campbell at Campbell at OU and Freeman at Notre Dame. It's certainly interesting. Certainly interesting. Notre Dame has seen what the bottom might look like. You think about the bad Charlie Weiss years where I believe Notre Dame may not have won a game in some of those, or at least they were pretty bad. And then of course, Tyrone Willingham, that experiment didn't work out in South Bend either on the Oklahoma side. It's been almost constant stability all throughout. If you listen to the Bob Stoops press conference today, when he stepped in as the interim head coach, he talks about how it's all about the players and the players are what makes up that Oklahoma program. And I I think there are major college football programs across the country who who know, well, obviously it is important that the players, the ones that play getting that higher right when you want to coast at the top, especially making that big move into the SEC that they're planning to make. It is also true, but it's not hard to sympathize with Lincoln Riley's decision-making process. Not just when you look at the contract and you see them buying out both of his multi-million dollar homes in Norman at 150% of asking price. Not just when you hear about 24, 7, 365 private jet access for him and the family for whatever purpose, but knowing that the route to sustained success in the Pac-12 at USC when given the resources, if he can get it right, it is going to be much easier than being in the dogfight that will be the SEC featuring in Oklahoma, featuring a University of Texas with all the big dogs that are already there. Do you think if Oklahoma and Texas, if Oklahoma knew that they would be losing Lincoln Riley, and if Texas knew that Steve Sarkeesian would go 5-7 and seven in his first year, do you think they would still be as keen to hop over to the sec (laughs) i mean i don't know it's such a long-term decision right and dollars and cents are what 
drive of most of these. But at the end of the day, when you see the University of Oklahoma president complaining about the lack of notice that he was given for <laughs> Lincoln Riley's change, knowing that the entire transformation of Oklahoma's status in Power 5 college football from the king of the Big 12 to another dog in the SEC was made in, what, two, three weeks' time at most? Probably less. It's like, yeah, you're not really one to ask for advanced notice. But I want to turn to the hardwood real quick here before we uh, cut things off. Virginia Tech heads up to the Empire State, the city of New York, and a little disappointing there. A close one against Memphis. I think for fans, it was more forgivable given the caliber uh, of a program that Memphis has right now under Penny Hardaway and how deep they are talent-wise. Against Xavier, there was more left to be desired. Xavier had some of their top players out. Virginia Tech still unable to get it done. But, Tay, you were at the first of the two contests. I'll ask you, what did we learn about Mike Young's squad here in their first two tests against real quality NCAA tournament caliber competition? I think it's that you need to have a solution plan for point guard, I think Storm Murphy looks so good in the first five games of the season and Memphis coming out. And by the way, like being right next to Memphis and mistakenly being next to their locker room and watching them come out was the most surreal experience of my life. I felt like I was suffocating in the hallway because they took up all the space, all the oxygen. They were some of the the longest and the longest human beings I've ever seen in my entire life, but they came out with a good strategy. The full court press on storm Murphy wanted to take the legs out from under him, make him tired by the time he got to the offensive end. So he couldn't facilitate or drive slash and drive and kick out. It, it, it just seemed like in that first game, Virginia tech really struggled with length and they didn't get a lot out of their point guard. It really came from Nahim Aleem, you know, making a few plays, uh, Keve Aluma didn't have the best shooting night from the floor. They were able to rebound well, but overall they just couldn't really shoot over Memphis and energy wise. It seemed like they didn't have enough depth to compete. When you look at the game against Xavier, it was encouraging to see Sean Padula come in and he had about 10 minutes of really solid play you know, Mike Young kind of rewarded that, even though he's a freshman, he was playing the crucial minutes. I think it was the last four minutes of the Xavier game. Uh, Sean Padula was in instead of Storm Murphy, who only played 18 minutes and had zero points. So Storm, obviously, four fouls was struggling, um, but they turned to the young freshman. And I think it's going to have to be development of depth because when Keve isn't, you know, shooting well from the floor, when Storm Murphy can only dribble up the court and can't really facilitate, all of a sudden it becomes a little one dimensional from Virginia Tech. And without the, you know, either big play shot making from Naheem Aline, there really wasn't too much to love about the offensive performance from Virginia Tech. It's certainly interesting when you talk about Murphy, right? Because last year with Wabisa Beatty, we had incessant complaining on Twitter that we had this point guard that was a non-factor offensively. And obviously that's some kind of huge liability, but now you see Sora Murphy, a guy that can make plays on the offensive end. But uh, we saw against Memphis that he's certainly uh, 
not the defensive caliber point guard that is equipped to go up against teams of Memphis's stature of their level of their talent level. I suppose you can look at the positives there and and see Memphis, a team that no one would be surprised if at the end of the year, they make a elite eight final four run, just given the conglomeration of talent that they have there in Memphis under Penny Hardaway. And Virginia tech was able to hang and keep the game within five points for the duration. And, Though the offense didn't flash, the defense, I think, so far this season has been far better than anyone expected out of this group, even with the liability that you have with Storm Murphy. That being said, I mean, two games in November, both of your tests come out as losses, but now with the road ahead being maybe even more challenging than we expected coming into the season, St. Bonaventure has proven themselves to be a, a very solid group, top 25 team in the country. Dayton just won a preseason tournament. They knocked off Kansas. And you have Duke and Carolina before the first of the year. We're going to learn a lot more about this Virginia Tech team. Doug, are you more or less confident than you were, I guess, coming into the season? I'm sure you probably lost a little bit of confidence that you had going into Brooklyn, but where, where are you at with this team? You certainly have to be a little more worried. I don't think it's anywhere near, you know, I, I think this is still an NCAA tournament team. This, the point guard situation is concerning. And I wonder if, you, you know, you, you're going to want to see progress from Storm Murphy as the season goes on here, especially coming up Maryland, Wake Forest, Cornell, Dayton, St. Bonaventure before you really get into ACC play. I think, you know, that's definitely the position to watch. Aluma's got to get better on the, on the block. Um, you know, the, the concern, I think, coming out of Brooklyn is that it it looks like Naheem Aline and, and Hunter Couture on any given night could be your best offensive player. Um, and I'm not sure how reliable that is over the course of an ACC season. Um, this is a, this is a, this is feels like it's going to be a team where all five guys are going to have to be working together to get the best, to get the most efficient play. Um, so yeah, I think, I think you definitely have to be less confident, but like Xavier was number 25. Memphis is a top 10 team. Those are two really, really good programs. And, you know, despite the offense looking a little shaky, despite Storm Murphy, you know, he was in foul trouble. But, you know, it was clear that Mike Young went with Padula down the stretch there. Um, Despite all that, I mean, they lost by one to Xavier and eight to Memphis. So I think you have to be a little encouraged that they still figured out how to how to hang in that game and those games and compete. So, you know, a little less confident. The offense is a little shaky, but you know, I think I I actually think the the tough non-conference schedule helps Virginia Tech here in terms of challenging them to figure it out, challenging Storm Murphy to raise his level of game. Um, I think he got a little overwhelmed there by the talent and length of Memphis, but like, you know, Maryland Wake. I don't know if Cornell is any good this year, but Dayton and St. Bonaventure, those are going to be stiff, competitive 40-minute games that, you know, Virginia Tech's eight-man rotation right now is going to have to, like, come to play. It's a lot better than if you came out of Brooklyn being like Storm Murphy can't play against length and a physical team as good as Memphis, and then they had, you know, five 
five guarantee games until ACC play, you know, that wouldn't, you're going to get a lot more answers here over the next four games and a lot more progress, I think, than you would, you know, just going back to playing gimme games, basically. I just want to close the loop on on the Barclays uh, on the NIT season tip off. First of all, congratulations to Iowa State. Uh, last year, they were two and 22 overall on the season, and they come out and win the entire thing. They played the full Xavier squad and then beat Memphis. But for Virginia Tech, I think the second game is more concerning just because of all the the talent that was out for Xavier and the fact that they let, uh, I think it was Nate Johnson, I, I think that was his name. He had 30 points, which was essentially, you know, more, it was 50% of their production. So the second game to me was more concerning. Um, I thought it was interesting too that Hunter Couture was the guy that they drew up the last the last shot for. So if he's your critical go to guy for the basket at the end of the game, I don't know if that's the best case scenario for Virginia Tech. Maybe it was for that specific moment. Um, but overall, you know, I think the the Memphis game was encouraging. They battled back. Xavier obviously played tough, but it was completely undermanned Xavier. And I think that one was more of a devastating loss. Indeed, indeed. Well, more tests yet to come. As you mentioned, St. Bonaventure, a Dayton team that beat Kansas. But on the immediate horizon, you have that Big Ten ACC challenge with a former ACC member in Maryland who came into the season as a top 25 team. And then, you know, you had your... Landers Nally game against Memphis. Now you have your Kadeem C game against Wake Forest. That one's going to come in Blacksburg in just a few days. We're very excited for both of them. But gentlemen, any last words? Who knows? We could be recording again in 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours. The timeline of this coaching search is unpredictable at this point with keeping it, as David Teal said, claustrophobically close to his chest. Any last words before we talk next? Yeah, so 21 minutes ago, a guy named Cole Thompson, who's a reporter at Fan Nation covering NFL and college football, host of Just Saying It, tweeted, the name I keep hearing around Virginia Tech is Bill O'Brien. Two people with much stronger ties have mentioned him in the past 24 hours. This should be a move made in the next 24 hours by the Hokies. So... Maybe we'll be back soon talking about Bill O'Brien and his commitment to college football (laughs) for a two year contract. (laughs) We'll see. Yeah. Keep, keep your phones close and keep VT scoop even closer. True that. True that. I'm sure Evan Watkins will have a lot to say when the decision is made. I am Andrew Alex for Doug Bowman and Matei Sist. Thank you for joining us. We're sure we'll talk to you soon. Hang in there. And until then go Hokies. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.